Please uh, take your Bibles again and turn to Genesis chapter 37, uh, tonight uh, beginning at verse 12. Genesis 37 at verse 12. Now we began last Lord's Day evening this study in the life of Joseph, and as we had mentioned before, it's not as much about Joseph, although we see him as a major character in all this. Actually, this the main character is the Lord God himself and his faithfulness and keeping of his covenant promises that I will be your God and you will be my people. And that the uh, God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as the sands upon the seashore, as the stars of the heavens. And you can imagine, you know, going out at night there in, in the Palestinian sky and seeing just the thousands and thousands and millions upon millions of those stars there, no light pollution, anything like that, it'd it'd be staggering. Uh, But specifically that there'd be that one to come who is the promised one of God and whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. And we see that at times this is, uh, the the promise appears to be quite... um, shaky as far as its fulfillment. Uh, the, the ways and workings of God at times reminds me of one of, one of those old-timey uh, uh, Saturday morning uh, serials at, or the matinees that you would go to and you would, you know, none of you are, are, are so, uh, probably grew up with Tom Mix, okay, but uh, you understand they were kind of a cliffhanger. And we have these series of cliffhangers here uh, throughout the scriptures, and we certainly see it here, and just looking at the ins and outs, God's ways are not our ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor to arrange for the safekeeping of God's covenant people, who at this time consist of Jacob and his family? How is this all going to be worked out? How is this going to uh, be shown? And we'll, we'll see all of this, and we're beginning to see this here in the life of Joseph. But we're reaching one of those points here uh, that the ways of God are not necessarily our own, and the means by which he affects his will are sometimes tragic. But God is able to turn the wrath of man to his praises. That our God at times, well, a lot of times, is that one who's able to draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And even the intents and designs of evil men, God thwarts and so channels it and uses it for the glory of his praise forever and ever. Amen. So tonight, we're looking at the latter part of chapter 37. Listen, this is God's word. Verse 12, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please where they're pasturing the flock. And a man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them 
at Dothan. That's part of this part of God's word. The family, it appears, is headquartered in the southern part of Palestine in Hebron. And because of the substantial flocks, you remember this morning we were reading earlier in, in uh, chapter 31 uh, that he had huge flocks, and we saw that also in chapter 30 of all these flocks, and there had been that separation where uh, they have left uh, Laban and his service there, and they're now in the southern part of Palestine, and they've got to have grazing land for them. So uh, they will move them to an area uh, called Shechem, up in the center part, the central part of Palestine. And uh, things are a bit dicey up there because if you know earlier here in Genesis uh, that this area around Shechem, there had been some bad blood, to say the least, between Jacob's sons and the Hivites, the people of that area. In chapter 34, after their sister Dinah had been sexually assaulted by a prince, who was also called Shechem, of the land, he then sought to marry her. And the brothers of Dinah, being outraged by all this, tricked the men of that place to enter into a covenant with the sons of Israel in order to intermarry with them. And the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Now, the motives for the Shechemites in entering into uh, this covenant were not necessarily the best of motives because they say, look, you know, it's, that's a good thing. Let's intermarry with them and our sons marry their daughters and their daughters marry our sons and, and we'll inherit some of the flocks that they see uh, that uh, Jacob has. But be that as it may, uh, they submit to that sign of circumcision, which is that sign of God's covenant that he had given to Abraham, that all the male descendants, if to be incorporated into the people of God, are to receive that sign and seal, all the, all the men, eight days of age and up. And so they submit to this. And while they're healing up, Simeon and Levi come in and put all of the men folk of that place to the sword. So you can understand why Jacob is anxious about his sons feeding the flocks up there around, uh, around the town of Shechem again. Um, you know, he's afraid that there's going to be a lot of pushback against his, his sons there. So he calls up Joseph. Joseph is 17 years of age here, and he's trusted by his father. He has that coat of many colors or the sleeves. He's a little unsure in the Hebrew. Is it referring to the long sleeves or... Or something about the garment uh, really ticked off the brothers because it was a symbol of authority and favor. And so uh, Joseph is sent to go check on his brothers. He's already been somewhat of an overseer for his brothers and brought back a, a bad report about his brothers' behaviors before. Um, the distance from Hebron to Shechem is not insubstantial. Joseph readily offers himself to do his father's will. And he's hardly unaware of the attitude his brothers already have against him. There's no hesitation, it appears here, not that Joseph is eager to go and to uh, tattle on his brothers, but he's intent on carrying out his father's will, even though he knows the opposition 
that his brothers already have against him is their animus, their enmity against him is set aside. We can think of another who knew of the animus, the enmity of those uh, who were against him and yet delighted to do the will of his father, our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows what is ahead and yet he submits himself to his father's direction. And so he says, here I am. And in scripture, that's a way of showing readiness and alacrity, that speediness and that joyfulness to commit oneself to doing the will of another. So Joseph is diligent. He discharges the duty that he has. He's sent to Shechem and he looks around. He doesn't find them there. And so he is found wandering in the fields. One, I wonder if it's perhaps he's uh, looking for a sign to track them, you know, some kind of evidence, what direction they might have gone. And a local directs him to Dothan, which is about 15 miles away. And he catches up with his brothers there. Let's look again at the text. Look at verse 18 here. They saw him from afar. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. You know, this murderous intent of the brothers here, they see him, uh, they think they've got opportunity, they've got uh, a motive. Uh, they, they hate, they despise him and they want to do him. It's not just they shrug him off as just this tattletale little brother of theirs. They are so enraged and they know of the dreams. See, here comes that dreamer. You remember the dreams that Joseph had, that they are going to bow down to him, be subservient to him, that he will be master and they will be the servants a total disruption of the order of things and their thinking. And it is, it is. But they, uh, not realizing or are not willing to fess up that this has come from the Lord, these dreams that Joseph has had, are not going to submit themselves to Joseph and ultimately not going to submit themselves to the Lord in this intention that's been displayed in the dreams. And so what do they do? They're going to put him to death. They first conspire against him to put him to death. Now, thankfully, in God's providence, Reuben, who is the eldest brother, the disgraced eldest brother, who had been removed from the privileges and the place of being the firstborn, says, no, 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 let's stick him over here in this pit because he has in the back of his mind that intention. He's going to rescue him and make himself look good in the eyes of dad and maybe hoped for some kind of restoration of his standing before his father in all of that. 
As we said before, some families uh, are called blended families. We've got these guys coming from uh, four different moms here, same dad, four different moms in this. Uh, as I said, uh, this is not a blended family. This is a family in a blender. The, 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 such a wicked, wicked group of men that they have such animus towards their brother. And so their intent is to uh, ditch him and, and then uh, maybe to rescue him. So they strip him of his robe, that one of many colors, to, to take away that authority, to denigrate this work of God and of their father in placing Joseph in this design. This is, this is an attack. And we think of somebody else who was stripped. Our Lord Jesus. And this pit was empty. There was no water in it. And so they chuck him in there. So then they notice here just, just the, the callousness. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt." Now, the text here in Genesis 37 doesn't include it, but there's another piece of information that just heightens the pathos here, the depths of, of, of the pain and of just how grievous a thing this was. In chapter 42, when Joseph's listening in, Joseph's now the grand vizier, the, the prime minister, as it were, of Egypt, and his brothers have come to him, and he hasn't revealed himself who he is to them, and he hears them uh, talking amongst themselves. Uh, he, he required of them to park uh, one of their brothers as a hostage. And they said to one another, verse 42 and 21, uh, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. These men could hear the cries, the begging of their brother in the pit, and they sit down to eat. What a background for that meal and their callous disregard for him, the hardness of their hearts here, that they treat their brother in that manner. Well, Reuben intends to rescue his brother from the pit, but too late. It appears that he may have been away when the caravan comes and is going to go on its way down to Egypt. And the rest of the brothers said, look, you know, what profit is there if we kill him? Let's, let's send him off. Nobody will know anything about him. Let's make a profit out of the deal. And they sell him off for 20 pieces of silver. And a piece of silver was the wage of a day laborer, so about four weeks' wages. 
divvied up amongst the brothers. Um, and today's uh, valuation of silver and everything, it, it would appear to be about 200 bucks each for the brothers. So he sells them off. Well, he is then taken down to Egypt in the caravan. Reuben comes back and he is utterly devastated by this because he, he has this plan to, to make himself look good before his brothers to rescue uh, Joseph, not out of any real concern for Joseph, but for his own standing, his own, you know, this, this is something to bolster his, his pretty shabby reputation that he has. When Reuben, verse 29, returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's blood and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it. It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So here they find a way that they think they're going to cover up their crime. It's going to make it look as if he's been torn apart by a wild animal. Uh, Jacob, interestingly, and here's an ironic point, had deceived his father by taking his brother's clothes and with the use of a, a kid goat that had been slaughtered, you remember his mother made kind of a patch to put around his neck and also coverings for his arms to feel hairy the way that uh, Esau is felt to be uh, all hairy. So the irony here as you read this uh, would not be lost on the Israelites as they many uh, years later are hearing this account and go in the same way, it's you know what goes around comes around. Um, in in this way, the the sins of his youth have come around to find him in his old age. But just the horribleness of this, the titanic hypocrisy, seeking to comfort their father in the death of Joseph when they know very well what happened to him. And notice just another another slice of their of their callous attitude towards him. See if this isn't your notice the words here, it's your son's robe, not our brother's robe. But then there's no mention of that. Just just the horribleness of this. Now Jacob appears to be someone who who puts together pieces and immediately runs to the worst case scenario. And all this to, to all now. Now it would naturally appear to be you know here's his robe. Uh, here is it's torn to bits. It appears to be by a wild animal. Here the blood soaked 
uniqueness of it and everything. And the brothers, hey, look, you know, we were out and about. We found this. We haven't found his body. Could he, you know, is this his? And Jacob immediately runs to the worst case scenario in this. And he is just so overcome with grief. This is his favorite son, the firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. That one whom he loved with such intensity and, and by this point, who is deceased. So she had two sons. Benjamin is the one who's still around, who's still alive. But, but Joseph is that one. He is his favorite and he's that one who has that coat of many colors. And now all of that has been dashed. All of that has been erased in his mind and he tears his garments, a sign of mourning amongst the people there and sits down and just is inconsolable in all this. He cannot be comforted and continues to mourn long after that that culturally accepted period for grief is over. No one can help him. His children, his daughters, nobody, nobody can console Jacob. Now, several things as we look at the text that we can draw from it uh, by way of our instruction tonight. First, you cannot thwart God. God always works his plan. You cannot throw a monkey wrench in God's plans and purposes. Uh, It appears that we sometimes thwart God. No, there's no way. He is God omnipotent. God all-powerful. His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted by us. You cannot kill the future if it is God's future, that design that he has mapped out for his glory and for the good of his people. Because if God's determined something, that thing will indeed come to pass. This is not some mechanical, blind inevitability of history and how it tends. It is something that's personally planned and executed and superintended by the living and true God. Joseph's brothers thought that the dreams given by God wouldn't be fulfilled, that they'd be short-circuited if they had removed Joseph from the scene. But the plans and purposes of God are not And that's one of the grand things that we see here in this life of Joseph. God is going to do what God says he's going to do. God is going to carry forth his plans and purposes. They are all yes and amen, we know, in Christ Jesus. There have been plenty of times people thought that they have... Uh, that they're going to do away with the plans and purposes of God. You think of Haman in the book of Esther, and he's, he's, he's going to do away with Mordecai, indeed, with all the Jews throughout the empire. And just the turn of events you see there in Esther, where God rescues his people. Just astounding. You... Also look at the cross. The intents and purposes of wicked men putting our Lord Jesus Christ to death. The enmity of those for whom he died is thwarted by God's plans and purposes. The 
plans and purposes of Satan and, and trying to do away with the Lord Jesus Christ and, and it probably the, the heinous delight that he had in Christ being put to death. I mean, you know what? Luther would call the cross the devil's mousetrap by which Satan in his plans and purposes was utterly thwarted by means of Christ's death upon the cross. You cannot thwart God, even these brothers, by first their intent of murdering him and then later of selling him off into Egypt and moving him off the scene. No, God is going to affect his purposes. Another thing we can learn here is God's strange twists of providence for his people. Calvin, and I think uh, when he wrote this, uh, had his tongue firmly planted in his cheek. He said, you know, seeing this family, one knows why God graciously is sending Joseph to Egypt. What an amazing thing this is. Our own confession of faith at chapter 5, section 1, says, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. This is a teaching of Scripture, a doctrine that should bring to us the greatest of comfort. God's control of all things from the greatest to the least. He's got this. There's no, as R.C. Sproul would say, no maverick molecule in this unit. There's nothing and no one that's going to blindside God. If he is intended and purposed from before the foundation of the world to love you in his son, Jesus Christ, ain't nobody and nothing is going to stand in his way and prevent him from fulfilling his purposes that are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus concerning you, concerning all things in this universe. An author by the name of Matt Bolton wrote a book, Life in God, and said when we read Job and elsewhere in Scripture, the issues of sin and suffering and evil are in the final analysis beyond human comprehension, beyond human understanding. Calvin contended that it would not be even useful for us to know what God himself to test our moderation of faith on purpose willed to be hidden. The secret things indeed belong to the Lord our God. As Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, and as we see on Wednesday nights in our studies of suffering, yes, there are reasons why God brings suffering and trial into our lives, but we're not always going to be able to to hang on the hook under the title for each of those eight categories that we had seen everything in our lives. There are some things God is just not going to be pleased to tell us. And so our response should be to modestly receive everything, whether that ray of sunshine or drop of rain is God's good gift and is part and parcel of his unfolding Uh, immersive, providential work. To live in the world this way, to interpret and experience it in this manner, is, uh, it can only come about by God's saving grace that we can say, this is my Father's world. Now, we're all, you know, we're all on board with the fact of the grandeur and the sweep of God's God's plan and purposes and working all things after the counsel of his will, we can see the magnificence of the clouds off in the distance in the summertime of the thunderheads building up and the lightning playing and, then, and just the glory and the roaring, rolling thunder as we 
sing about and how great thou art. And the, and the fields with all the flowers and, and just the goodness and sweetness and the joy that we have in our family. And uh, the, uh, we look around and say our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren as olive shoots around the table as the psalm would talk about. We're all for that and we love that. But his plans and purposes include the screams and cries of Joseph in the pit and being sold off into Egypt. And the horror of Jacob when he's presented with his son's blood-soaked robe. Where is God in this? Right where he's always been. And Joseph may be in the pit, but he is right squarely in the hollow of our Father's hand. And nothing and no one can snatch him from that hold. That is... Why we can sing every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial. By whom? By the Son of Love. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, wrote in his Pensees, Had Cleopatra's nose been shorter, the whole face of the world would have changed. Mark Anthony was so enamored with Cleopatra, especially her beauty. The problem was he was married to Octavia, Caesar Augustus's sister, so his divorce from her brought about a split with Augustus as well. And there was the Battle of Actium on September 2nd in the year 31 BC, where Anthony died and his forces were crushed. And Augustus was afterward the ruler of all the Roman Empire. And with him was ushered in the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. And such peace brought about conditions for the easy spread of the gospel from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. God's ways are past finding out and using the plans and purposes of evil men, God is so able to bring about his will and purposes for the glory of his name and for the good of his saints. God is in all the details. The fact that the brothers had moved on from Shechem to Dothan near, their tr- near that trade route that comes down in that part of the world from up around Damascus and Syria and then down in that part of Palestine, more towards the coastal plain, and then down into Egypt itself. Had they been in Dothan, they would have missed this caravan coming. I mean, had, the, had they been in Shechem. Instead, they move on to Dothan. It appears that the, the grazing was not as good. Why was it that the grazing was not as good? God is in the details. That he arrives at that particular place and that time there and finds his brothers, is tossed into the pit, and then at that particular time, they're sitting down to eat, and that caravan, that particular caravan, going south, not going north, comes by. And they just happen 
happen, put here in air quotes, to have the cash and, and the desire to pick up a slave to hit, take on down to Egypt to sell. At the moment, we don't immediately think on this. We're in the midst of our troubles and our trials, and we see all these things happening around us in such a dismaying fashion that we, you know, we, we can't sort out the plans and purposes of God and the whys and wherefores and the designs of His will that is beyond our comprehension. But one day, He could say, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God sent me ahead of you to save many lives. And the vehicle by which God took him there was as a slave for 20 pieces of silver. Not even the full price of of an adult slave. 30 pieces of silver would be that. He's sent down to Egypt by means of that caravan. We all have those things in our lives that are bewildering and and affect us in various ways, shapes, and form. Uh, Part of the workings of God in my life is that I wouldn't have met Marie if the owner of a radio station I worked for hadn't needed money since he was going through his third divorce. And he sold half interest in the station to a local businessman and put it in charge, that businessman's son-in-law who knew nothing about radio station management. Long story short, I moved to a town 60 miles away to work at another station, made new friends, and started teaching a single adult's Bible study. And on the hottest day on record at that time is 118 degrees, Marie shows up. And looking back on the course of our lives, we can begin to pick up the traces of the hand of God in our lives. At the time... We can see mostly and sometimes only the harshness of others and their cruelty against us. But the time will come when we can say that God has indeed worked all things together for good for those who love him or they're called according to his purpose. Knowing now that this is God's way must be comforting to us. We begin to, as we said, modestly to receive everything from God's hand. Does that excuse the wickedness of men? If God had meant it for good, even though they meant it for evil, did that mean that Joseph's brothers were off the hook for the heinousness of their crime, their intent, their hatred of their brother, their desire to put him to death, and instead of selling him off into Egypt and and seeking to, to blind their father to the fact of their malice? Towards him? No. No, not at all. Not at all. But in and through all of these things, the will of God plays out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So as we look at this text here before us tonight, we see God's gracious care. 
of us, of his people. As we said before, where was Joseph? In the pit. His brothers were callous to his cries. And yet, he is there in the hollow of God's hand. And his cries also, I would hope, have gone up to the Lord himself. And God's answering of prayer at times is not exactly according to the the placement of where we want to be, but where he's sovereignly designed for us to be. I don't think Joseph, in crying out, if he were to the Lord here in the pit, was, Lord, save me by making me a slave in Egypt. But you know, when we, when we come before the Lord and we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven, we're signing on the dotted line a blank check. And, and saying, Lord, here am I. Use me. Whatever way, whatever manner, however you please, for the glory of your name and for the good of your kingdom, for the good of your people. Joseph presenting himself to his father that day, here am I, knowing indeed the animosity of his brothers, knowing indeed their hatred of him, and still going, wearing that coat of many colors, that symbol of his authority there, not to rub it in the face of his brothers, I don't think, but there because his father has invested him with that authority and commanded him to go. Our Lord Jesus Christ. So many parallels here that we see of delighting to do the will of his father, of going and he wasn't sold down to Egypt in slavery. He went down to the pit of death for us. And they laid him in a tomb. And as we profess in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. There the place of the dead. He was truly, really, fully, all the way dead. And God raised him to newness of life in Christ. Pulled him out of the miry pit, out of the clay. As the psalmist uh, speaks of, of God's rescue and redemption of his, of his people in this way. Joseph being, as it were, in a sense, resurrected from prison as we will see, God willing. God's affecting his plans and purposes in your life and in mine. By faith, we are enabled to say, it is good that God has treated me in this way. It is good that God has so worked this for his glory. Because we're enabled by faith to entrust ourselves to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly more than we could hope or even ask. As, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, our faithful Savior, our Lord Jesus, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins 
and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. And indeed, unto him be all glory and honor and praise. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious God. Your ways are past finding out. Your working of all these things, even in the, in the grave and grievous things that are brought into our lives, when we feel that we might be in the pit, yet, Lord, we are in the hollow of your hand and nothing and no one can snatch us from you. We ask that you would help us to view the things that occur around us rightly for the glory and honor and praise of your name. Oh, our God, how we praise you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy, for those continual reminders of all of those things. Uh, Lord, keep our eyes and our ears open to them. But yet, even if we're in the midst of circumstances that are, are to, around us are just blotting out the sun, as it were, we realize that the Son, our Lord Jesus, is still on the throne. And we look beyond those things to him and rejoice. For it's in his name we ask it. And again, we as God's people say, amen and amen.